Well, welcome to week five, the final week of our series called In Search Of. And if you haven't been with us throughout this series, this is a series where we're looking about uh, this void that we all have and the need that we feel to search for things, to fill those voids, to find satisfaction and fulfillment. And throughout the series, we've been looking at unlikely encounters that people had with Jesus in which they found fulfillment. And I wanted to end this series. I knew from the very beginning of planning this series that I would end with uh, the story of Judas Iscariot uh, because I think it's an unlikely story. Uh, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, one of Jesus' closest followers on this earth who traveled with him, who was in his inner circle, who heard more teaching on this earth than any other group of people would unlikely search for satisfaction outside of Jesus and have this lack of an encounter on a heartfelt level that led him to be known as the great betrayer. So now his name is, is kind of scarred, and when people betray one another, even today, they're called a Judas. And so uh, today, I know it's kind of intense, but I just feel a heaviness because here's, here's what I believe. I believe when you hear the story of Judas, as we're going to talk about in a few minutes, you're going to think that, that Judas is the worst of the worst. And you're going to think that he is so far past the evil that you would ever recognize. But I'm just humble enough to admit to myself, and I hope that when we leave we'll all recognize together, that there is great potential for us to make decisions that cause destruction in our lives, that none of us are above it, no, none of us are beyond it, none of us are exempt or immune from temptations in life that would cause us to feel like we could find satisfaction outside of Jesus. And so in this series, we've, we've kind, of, kind of answered the question that the void that, that we all have in our heart is only filled with Jesus, that he's the great fulfiller. He's the fulfillment that we're searching for. Our heart longs for satisfaction, and it can only be found in him. Yet so many, especially in today's culture, are close to the things of God. They're near the things of God. But if we're not careful, we can be far from him in hearts. And so I want to look at the story of Judas, and then I'm going to share with you four thoughts from the life of Judas that hopefully will apply to our lives, that we can learn from, that we can embrace and put into practice. Uh, take today as a warning, if you will. Take today as a word of encouragement to live a life free from regrets and free from destruction that's caused by lies that would cause you to think you can find satisfaction outside of Jesus. So let's go ahead and jump into some scripture, uh, starting in Luke chapter number uh, 22. Um, many would think that this is the beginning of the story of Judas, and when you hear the story of Judas, we kind of always start at this point. Um, and so I want to start here, but then I want to back up a little bit after this. This is Luke chapter number 22, uh, starting in verse number 1. Luke writes, Now the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. And listen to verse 3. This is an important statement. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, the twelve closest disciples, the closest followers, the inner circle of Jesus on this earth. Satan enters him as a group of people are looking for a way to bring Jesus down because they fear the people that are following him. Verse number 4, and Judas 
went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. Now this is, this is shocking. This is scandalous. This is, this is unparalleled to believe that one of Jesus' closest followers, the Son of God, sent from heaven to earth to live a perfect life, who would have shown the world compassion and grace? Who would have healed sick people? Who would have raised dead people to life? Who would have taught with such authority that even the, the smartest, most intellectual, most educated leaders of that day uh, would have been drawn to his teaching? This would have been a man that was worth following. And to be on the inner circle of that would have been an unimaginable experience. To find inside the circle of Jesus' closest followers, the true riches of everything that he taught and everything that he did. And yet Luke tells us that Satan entered one of these 12. Satan, the great deceiver, the enemy of our faith, the devil who's looking to destroy all of our lives, much like he did Judas, enters Judas and, and prompted through the evil in his heart, Judas went to the leaders of that day who were looking to harm Jesus, to eliminate Jesus, and he began to negotiate a way to betray Christ, to hand him over, to cause the beginning of the demise of Jesus. And you know, part of me, like when I first read this statement, has a little bit of fear creep up on the inside of me that says, man, I've got to be extremely careful because if I'm not careful, Satan will enter me and it almost, if we just take it on a level like that, creates this paranoia in our minds that if we just make the wrong mistakes, if we don't do exactly the right things, then Satan's going to enter us and he's going to cause us to do things that would betray Christ. And that's where most of us start with the story of, of Judas. And we think, you know, how unfair. How unfair that Satan would have entered one of Jesus' closest followers. How unfair that he would have been chosen of the twelve to be the betrayer. The truth is the story doesn't start there with Judas and it's not a life of paranoia that we need to live fearful that Satan is going to enter our lives and cause us to do things. That's, that's not the way salvation works, that we're sealed by God's Holy Spirit, that we don't have to fear Satan coming in. But, but I want to I bring some insight into how this happened. So let's, let's back up. We're going to jump over to John chapter number 12. We're going to see a little of the history of, of Judas and his role and, and how it became possible for Satan to enter him and cause him to become the great betrayer. This is John chapter 12. John writes, starting in verse 4, um, this is in the context of a meal that Jesus is having with some of his disciples in the home of, if you'll remember, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and Jesus is back in that home. There's Martha, there's Mary. They're having a meal together, and in this meal, Mary comes, and she breaks an expensive jar of perfume, and she begins to pour the perfume on Jesus' feet. If you'll remember the story, she takes her hair down, and she begins to wash his feet with her hair as a, as a sign of worship, but this would have been something that would have uh, seemed wasteful and inappropriate in that day. And listen to verse number four of John 12. It says, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. Doesn't he seem like a hero here? Doesn't it seem like Judas is the wise 
of the group. He's the wise leader in the group who's thinking about protecting the integrity, who's thinking about helping the poor, who's thinking about using resources in a good manner. See, Jesus didn't discourage Mary when she began to lavish him with this perfume that would have been worth a year's wages that seeming was wasted on his feet because he saw it as worship. But Judas speaks up and says, you know, this isn't appropriate. How could we allow this to happen? This is a a year's wages. We could have sold it. We could have taken the money and we could have fed the poor. We could have changed this community. We could have done so much more. Do you ever feel like that there's a lot of waste that happens that could be used in different ways? And we would say Judas would have been championing the cause for wise stewardship. But, But listen to the next verse. It says, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So here's, here's the truth about Judas. He was chosen personally to follow Jesus. He walked with Jesus and he followed Jesus. And his role in the, among the disciples was the keeper of the money. He was, he was the, the financial guru among them and he handled all the finances he kept the books he was the accountant he was the man in charge of the money and we see some insight here that in his role his love of money caused him to view his relationship with Christ and the role that he played in that relationship through tainted glasses and he wasn't caring about the poor when he was making such a wise comment to Jesus, but he was thinking of ways that he could have been more of a thief. As the keeper of the money, no one knew when he would take money for himself. No one knew that, that he would keep some aside and that he was looking for ways to get more money because he wanted more for himself. See, the truth about Judas was that Jesus wasn't his God, though he was close to Jesus and though he was near Jesus. But Judas served money. Judas served money, and, and money drove him, and, and money consumed him, and money caused him to do things that he would have probably never done had he not loved money the way he did. And so because of this, this love of money, we can see how Satan tempts him later in the story when it's time for him to betray Christ. Because as he approaches the leader's of that day, we see that he begins to negotiate with them what in exchange for betraying Christ? Money. In fact, it was 30 pieces of silver, which equivalent in today's world would have been three to four months' wages. So, based on the average income of, let's say, $50,000, we're talking of twelve dollars to $15,000 that he received in exchange for betraying the Son of God and turning his back on the Christ, the hope of the world the Savior for all mankind, the great fulfiller, the one who can bring true satisfaction for 15 grand, he sells him out because he loved money. And though he was near and though he was close to Jesus, he wasn't a true follower. And I have this heavy heart because I think in today's culture it's easy to be close to the things of God 
It's easy to think that church attendance equates a relationship with God. It's easy to think that knowing certain Bible stories equates a relationship with God. We're in the Bible Belt. We're in the South. We know a lot of the Bible. We know the Easter story. We know the Christmas story. We know enough to have conversations with people. And sometimes we equate that knowledge and the traditions or the experiences that we may embrace with a relationship with Jesus. And the truth is, is that's a dangerous ground. To allow yourself to become so deceived to think that because of the things that you do religiously that you have a true relationship with Christ and that you're finding fulfillment in him. And so when we go to Matthew chapter 27, the one account in the Gospels that shows us the end of Judah's story, it says in verse 3, Matthew writes, When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied? That's your responsibility. So Jesus, Judas threw the money into the temple and left. And then he went away and he hanged himself. How is it possible for one of Jesus' closest followers to walk with him to hear him teaching, to see him perform miracles. I mean, you can imagine Jesus spitting on the ground and taking mud and rubbing it on a man's eyes and the man who was blind can see and thinking, this guy's for real. I mean, you, you were probably there when he raised Lazarus from the dead who had been in the grave for a couple of days. And, and Jesus commanded the people of the house to roll the stone away that, that covered the entrance to the tomb. And Jesus spoke a few words and out walked a dead man wrapped in grave clothes. You can imagine, like, this guy's for real. Like, I'll give everything to follow him. Like, he's got anything that I could ever need in this, want, in this world. And yet a man that experienced all that was more attracted to 15 grand than he was to remaining faithful to the Christ and to following him to the very end. And in a moment of realization, when he realized, I betrayed innocent blood and Jesus doesn't deserve to die and I've handed him over. I've been the one that has been responsible for handing him over. He was so seized with regret and guilt. Get this, the money had no satisfaction anymore. And what he was tempted by and what he thought would bring fulfillment in his life was the very thing that he was willing to throw away. Because it wasn't worth it. He saw his eyes were open. He realized, I've made a huge mistake. I can't believe I've been such a fool. I don't know what went on in Judas' mind. I don't, I don't understand what would cause a person to kill themselves. I know that suicide is rampant in today's world. I can't imagine the pain that one goes through to get to a point to want to take your own life. But that's what happened to Judas. Judas as he realized that he had searched for fulfillment in something that would never bring satisfaction, and the dissatisfaction in his heart led him to give up on life. How do you give up on life when you walk with Jesus? How do you, how do you give up on life when you've seen him do everything that you can imagine? He's fulfilled prophecies. He's, I mean, you name it, he's done it all. You've been there, you've seen it. And you give up on life. Because you weren't a true follower 
and you allowed yourself to search for satisfaction outside of Christ. So here's, here's four quick things that I want to talk to us about, that I want to point out to us, that I want us just to kind of ponder in our hearts. And um, hopefully, hopefully we can leave understanding the importance of being satisfied in Christ. Here's, here's the first thing that I want to point out to us. Unrepentant sin leads to destruction. Unrepentant sin leads to destruction. I know that word unrepentant is kind of a, a churchy word. The Bible uses the term repent uh, in conjunction with a follower of Christ who essentially turns away from their sin. Okay, and so we have this picture of a person coming to Christ who has embraced a lifestyle of sin, and to repent means that they turn their back on the sin and they turn towards Christ. And they follow him. So they don't do the things they used to do. Okay? Now, let's just kind of all be real here today. Okay? We all sin. Okay? I know, I know, I know that you are super holy. We're in good company, you and I. I'm just kidding. That was a joke. But the truth is, is that we do not live sinless lives. We are not Christ Jesus. Okay, Now, when sin enters our life, when we sin, when we commit sin, when we do something to trespass, to go against the things of God, when we, when we make decisions, when we participate in things that, that cause Christ to grieve, that cause us to, um, to, to make a decision basically that turns our back on Christ rather than turning our back on sin, we have an option. Okay, Number one, we live with the sin in our heart, which grows and festers, it's like a cancer, and it will, it will destroy us in the end. Or two, we confess that sin, like First, 1 John 1, 1.9 says, it says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay, so when Jesus died on the cross, he died for your sins, past, present, and future, all of your sins have been paid for. You only need to confess your sin and receive forgiveness for that sin, but then you're expected to repent, to turn from the sin, to not live the lifestyle of sin any longer. Okay? So, so if I'm going down the road and, and there's drivers who can't drive that make me angry and in my anger I sin and I say things I shouldn't say or I make gestures I shouldn't make, in that sin I have an option. Do I continue in that life of sin chase them down and run them off the road and give them what they deserve? Or do I, in my heart, become gripped by the reality of my sin and confess that sin and say, Jesus, I'm sorry, please forgive me of the sin, and then stop doing it? Let's kind of progress a little bit here. Let's, let's say that, that I'm a person who loves money, who enjoys things that money can provide for me, and, and I find ways to steal money. Let's put ourselves in Judas' position here. What starts out as a little bit of money that brings some type of satisfaction that we think if we don't confess that sin, if we don't repent, if we don't stop stealing money because Jesus expects us to change our lifestyle and to leave a life of sin and to turn our back on sin and to repent. If I don't do that, then that little bit of money doesn't bring the satisfaction. There's a law of diminishing returns. And so now I need to get more money uh, to bring the satisfaction that I think I need. And before long, I'm in way over my head cheating on taxes, lying to people, 
You see how things build upon things and things build upon things. And what once was just taking a little bit of money from someone now becomes a lifestyle of pursuing more money and the satisfaction we think it can bring. And it grows and it builds and it builds. And so if we have sin in our life, if we've embraced sin, if our eyes are looking at things that are displeasing to God, if our ears are listening to things that are displeasing to God, if we're going places that are displeasing to God, if we're engaged in activities that are displeasing to God, then there comes a point where we have to say, I'm going to repent, I'm going to confess this sin, and there's grace for you. There's no one here telling you that you're going to hell because you cussed someone out for, for not being able to drive properly. <laughs> but if you make it your life's mission to correct terrible drivers, and you run people off the road and you're killing people and you're putting bombs under bridges and you've gotten to a point where it's a little out of control, it's because something started out small and you never repented. And you allowed it to grow and sin always wants more. It always wants more, and it always wants more, and it grows, and it grows, and grows, and before long, like Judas, we've allowed ourselves to be so entangled in sin that it destroys us. It destroys us. And so we've got to find satisfaction in Christ by leaving the sins that are in our life. It starts with searching our hearts, like David prayed in Psalm 51, search my heart, O God, and reveal any wicked ways that are within me. Created me a pure heart, a steadfast heart. You may be here, you, you may have sinned recently, like most of us, like all of us. And as you're looking at your sin in the mirror every morning, you've got a choice. Am I going to continue to walk in the ways of sin, or am I going to repent? I'm going to confess this sin and change my ways. And if you choose to continue walking in the ways of sin, you're basically taking God's grace for granted, you're abusing it, and you're leaving a life that's going to lead to destruction. Sin always wins. Sin always destroys. That's why it's important for us to rid ourselves of sin, to confess that sin. But Judas never did that. And as close as he was to Christ... He never repented. He allowed that sin to grow to a point where he betrayed the Son of Man and was a vessel used not by God but by Satan himself. Unrepentant sin leads to destruction. Number two, we are never immune to temptation. We're never immune to temptation. We can never get to the place in life where we're not tempted, okay? That's heaven. We're not in heaven. We will always be tempted on this earth with sin, we're never immune to temptation, and we must learn to recognize the lies that temptation provide. Temptation offers deferred satisfaction, which means there's something that I can do to get something. It's not an instantaneous satisfaction. It's something that always leaves you longing for more. And when you do something that you think is going to bring true satisfaction, there's always a caveat that says, well, if you take it a step further, you're really going to be satisfied. And if I find that satisfaction, then really, if it's just another step forward, just, just one more step forward, and then I'll be satisfied. It's the deferred satisfaction that leaves us always longing for more and wanting more, where Christ offers true fulfillment here and now. He offers joy now. He offers peace now. 
doesn't matter what your circumstances are. He offers peace and joy and fulfillment and satisfaction now in him. The temptation leaves us longing for more. And we're not immune to temptation. And, and being tempted is not a sin. You need to know that. You need to know, men, that, that when you're tempted to look at a woman, it's not a sin. But if you follow the woman down the aisle and around the corner, okay, you're getting into some sinful territory there. Okay? There's a difference. It's not, it's not a sin to, to be tempted by more money and, and, and doing things that would get you more money, but it's a sin when you begin to do the things that would get you more money that are, that are immoral. It's not a, a sin when you see something flash up on your screen that would cause you to want to click on it and look at something inappropriate. It's a sin when you click it. Okay? There's an, there's an X or there's a red circle. You can close that page. You're good. You, you get my drift here. We're not immune to temptation. Temptation is for us all. We're always going to be tempted with something. Your temptations will look different from my temptations because we're all wired differently. And Satan knows just the ways to tempt us to try to destroy us. For Judas, it was money. For you, it's possibly money, but it's any number of things. You're never going to be immune to it. And you need to understand that and realize that. But then you need to understand the lies that come with the temptations. What would cause a married man to long for a relationship with someone that's not his wife? Let me tell you what it, what it is. It's a lie. A lie that says that there's more satisfaction to be had outside of your marriage. What would cause, what would cause a, a person to want to kill someone? Like to end their life. It's a lie that says your anger will be satisfied when they are no more. It's, it's not true. It's a lie that says that you're going to find satisfaction in ending someone's life. That your anger has gotten to a point where you're going to be satisfied only by ending someone's life. It's, it's a lie. It's a lie that that anything that you do to bring satisfaction to yourself outside of the confines of Jesus will bring satisfaction. It's a lie. It's all a lie. The Bible calls the devil the father of all lies. Satan is the father of all lies. And so he wants to convince us mentally that there is satisfaction out there on the horizon. And we can chase it and we can search it. And once we get there, our lives will be so much better. And we make such stupid decisions because we believe lies that would lead us places that are far from true satisfaction. And we wonder, how did we end up in this situation? We lose families. We lose relationships. We lose finances. We lose our reputation. We lose our pride. We lose, we lose everything. I mean, what, what would cause a person to think that just one more hit, that just, that just one more needle, that just one more will make all the pain go away? Just one more drink. It's a lie. And we find ourselves in places where we realize the temptation isn't what it appeared to be. 
And we've chased something that didn't lead me to satisfaction. And so, so here, here's a, a verse to encourage you, but I want to look at it in a different light in just a moment. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. That's temptation. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, which means Judas' temptation isn't beyond us. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. So a common temptation for Judas led him to betray Christ. And it's the same platform by which we stand on that will allow us to turn our backs on Christ if we'll chase temptation. We've got to repent of our sins. We've got to leave lifestyles of sins. And we've got to understand that though we will be tempted, temp- temptation is it's always a lie that leads us to a place far from satisfaction that we think it will provide. The third thing is a statement I've, I've really already made, but I want to just make it in a different way. So we betray Christ when we find our satisfaction outside of him. We betray Christ, this is Judas, when we find our satisfaction outside of him. Judas was with Christ but found satisfaction outside of him, and so it caused him to betray him. There's a pastor named John Piper who says it this way. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. There's this this lie, this belief that causes Christianity to be unattractive to people outside of the church or people inside of the church for that matter. And it's a belief that if I'm going to follow Jesus, then my life is just going to be lame. I can't do anything fun. I can't experience any pleasures in life. And so I have to be willing to give up everything to follow Jesus. And there's, there's truth in that. You do have to give up everything to follow Jesus. And it's not about you anymore. But the truth is, God gets most glory from our life when we find satisfaction in him. Like he's not up in heaven saying, oh, my little robots down there, they're so miserable, but oh, I'm so in control of their life. This is great. Look, Holy Spirit, look. (laughs) They're so miserable, but look, they're in church again. They hate it, but they're there. I'm so happy today. This is great. Look, their life, oh my, they've given up every form of pleasure. Look how miserable they are, but I'm so proud that they call themselves a Christian. That's not the God we serve. It's fun to be a Christian. There's fulfillment. There's satisfaction in being a Christian because no longer do the things of this world bring satisfaction to us, but the things of God bring satisfaction to us. And in him, we find true satisfaction and fulfillment. He came to give us life more abundantly. He doesn't want us to be miserable puppets here on the earth. The temptations we've talked about cause us to see 
fulfillment outside of Jesus. And when we do that, not only do we not find true satisfaction, but we don't bring glory to God with our lives. This is First Corinthians, um, excuse me, Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Paul writing here a letter to the church at Philippi. He says, but whatever were gains to me, whatever was attractive to me, whatever I found fulfillment in once, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. They pale in comparison. Uh, those things that I once considered gain, they're loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Now, I don't know about the God that you serve, but the God that Paul served and the God that Paul taught about and the Jesus that that I love and embrace is a Jesus that's worth giving everything of the world up for because there's so much more satisfaction in him than that stuff will ever offer. And when you get to the point where you know Jesus, when you get to the point where, where you've got a relationship with him, you'll begin to realize that all of those things that once were gained all of those things that I once lived for, they're lost. They, they pale in comparison. There's, there's nothing that they would ever be attractive to me for again because I have found satisfaction in Jesus. He is, he is that kind of God. He is the kind of God that, that brings so much joy to your heart that you realize, I can't believe I once found joy in that. How ridiculous is that? I once, I mean, I actually used to do that on a regular basis and I thought that that brought happiness to my life. That is unbelievable. I mean, Jesus, can you believe that I once, I used to do that. And now I know true satisfaction. I know true hope. I know true peace. I know true joy. And those things pale in comparison. And this perspective that we have just illustrates this truth that when we find satisfaction outside of Christ, we dishonor him and we betray him. And the glory that he longs for in us, not from being puppets that are miserable, but by being satisfied children in his family. He longs for that relationship with us, with you, with me. That's what we're searching for. That's what you're longing for. That's what your heart cries out for. It's nothing that this world can bring you. It's only found in Jesus. And the last thing. that I want to notice from the story of Judas is that it's, it's possible to be near the things of God but being near the things of God doesn't make you near to God. It's possible to be near to the things of God without being near to God. I'm afraid that that we have dumbed the Christian faith down to a checklist. And we feel as though, sometimes, as long as our checklist is full, then our relationship with God is great. Got to go to church. Got to read my Bible. Got to give some money. Got to say a prayer. Got to help somebody this week. Good deed here. And we step back from our checklist and we say, oh, I'm not doing so great. Got a lot of empty squares there. I got to really work on that. I got to put some more time, some more energy, some more effort into that. 
where we get prideful and we say, man, my checklist is looking good. I'm gonna take a couple of days off. I mean, you ever feel that struggle inside, like the checklist mentality? I gotta own up certain things. I gotta fulfill responsibilities and then my relationship with God is good. No doubt Judas would have had a full checklist. There was a time in Judas' life where Jesus sent out all of his disciples two by two. And the Bible says they went out and they cast out demons and they healed the sick. Some even raised the dead. Judas would have been included in those two by two groups. He would have gone out with someone and he would have experienced things of God. But he would have returned not really near to God, but with a heart that longed for money and didn't find satisfaction in God, but found satisfaction in things of this world. You've heard it said before that you can stand in a garage all you want, but it'll never make you a car. You can sit in a church every Sunday for the rest of your life, and it's not going to make you a Christian. And you can read the Bible cover to cover, time after time after time after time. And that alone won't make you near to God. It will help you know more about God. I think the danger in our society and our culture today is that we have a knowledge of God. And we think that that knowledge is sufficient for a relationship with Jesus. But the truth is, if you're finding satisfaction outside of Christ, if your heart longs for things that aren't godly, then you probably don't know Jesus the way he wants to know you. We've said from the beginning that our church exists to make Christ known in the lives of people far from God. And there's been some, there's been some, some, some rub on that and like, well, what about people who aren't far from God? Um, it, far from God doesn't mean prostitute. It doesn't mean murderer. It doesn't mean drug addict. It doesn't mean alcoholic. I believe all over this country, this world right now, there are people sitting in churches who are far from God. And they may believe that sitting in that church that day appeases the gods, makes God not be angry at them, helps them have a better life. But they haven't found satisfaction in Jesus. And they're searching outside of him for something that only he can provide. It's possible to be near the things of God and still be far from him. And I just wanted to end this series with an honest plea and with a warning that I would hate for us to ever be a church that's all about the things of God but not about the heart of God. It's all about doing and serving and giving and attending and a checklist of things, joining a small group, making sure we serve on Team Synergy, make sure we're giving of our tithes and offerings, make sure we're inviting people to come to our church and yet miss the heart of God altogether. A relationship with Jesus isn't driven by a checklist. It's just that it's a relationship and you can know Jesus and you can find satisfaction in him that you'll not find anywhere else in this world. 
And until you come to the point in realizing that he's the great fulfiller and he's not longing to make you miserable for his sake, he's not a narcissistic God saying, make me proud while you're miserable. He takes glory in you being satisfied. His greatest privilege in life is seeing you satisfied, seeing the joy in your heart, seeing the peace that he gives you in times where you shouldn't have peace, and seeing the happiness that you possess when nothing in your life would cause you to be happy, and seeing the contentment that you have when this world would say you shouldn't be content. That's what makes Jesus incredibly proud. That's what brings glory to him is you being satisfied. And this morning, I want to give you an invitation to be satisfied by Jesus. Not to be about the things of God, but to begin to know Jesus. Not to find your satisfaction outside of him and the things of this world, but to find true satisfaction in what only he can offer. And it starts by submitting ourselves to the truth that Jesus loved us enough to give his life for us. And what Jesus, what Judas did fulfilled prophecy and made it possible for Jesus to give his life for us. But I would never want to be in Judas' shoes. And you don't have to be. And I don't have to be. And this morning, I don't care if you've been in church your entire life. I don't care if you've been here three months straight. If you don't know Jesus, then you don't know satisfaction. But this morning you can. So would you bow your heads with me, please? If you're here and you would simply say, I have found satisfaction outside of Christ, and I have longed for things outside of a relationship with him, and I've chased temptations, I've embraced sin, I've allowed myself to get to a place even though I may be close to the things of God that's really far from him. And this morning, I just want to submit my life to him and allow him to do for me what I can't do for myself. And I want to receive his grace and his forgiveness and his mercy and his satisfaction. If that's you, nobody looking around, just stick a hand up, just say, that's me. And put those down. Anybody else? That's me. Hands all over the room. One more moment. I just believe that today's not a coincidence or an accident, that you're here to hear that what you're in search of is Jesus, and he'll bring the only true satisfaction that you need. One last moment. Anybody else? Would you just stick a hand up? Let me see it. You can put it right back down. Awesome. Now everybody look at me. If you had your hand up, so proud of you, and I can't wait for you to experience life in Jesus with satisfaction and, and see the difference that he can bring into your life. And I want to lead you in a prayer. It's just a simple prayer. There's nothing magical about the words in the prayer. You don't have to pray this exact prayer. So um, I just want to lead you in a time of prayer that would that help you solidify what God's wanting to do in your life in this moment. Uh, and so that you don't feel singled out or isolated or, or anything. I want to ask that can we just all together... As a church, can we just all say this prayer with those who had their hands up out loud? Would you just all repeat with me this morning? Say, Dear Heavenly Father, I long for a relationship with you. And I realize that now. 
And I'm sorry for all of my sin. I pray you forgive me for it. I repent of it. I live for you. And I ask you to bring true satisfaction to my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we all just have a hand clap of praise for all those who prayed that prayer?